Well, 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 good evening, everyone, and welcome back to part two of our celebration uh, called Liberation, uh, Remembering I Was Born This Way. And as you can tell, tonight's focus um, is on the legacy of Archbishop Carl Bean, and uh, we are going to talk about gospel and its influence on secular music. And we're so excited to have all of you here with us this evening. So let's jump right into it. Okay, so to jump into tonight's program. Um, so last week, we discussed uh, the legacy of Charles Valentino. So Val is the man who sung the original version of I Was Born This Way in 1975. I Was Born This Way was written by Bunny Jones and Chris Spearer. Chris is in the chat. Um, Chris, if you could um, make sure that folks know who you are and do a quick wave so that folks can shout you out. We also have Chris Jones in the chat. So Chris Jones is Bunny Jones's son. Um, Chris is in the chat as well. So thank you both so much for joining us for this um, additional conversation. Um, just so happy to have you here. So happy that we're able to honor uh, the legacy of this incredible body of work. So as I mentioned last week, um, we talked to Charles Valentino and we talked about the history of I Was Born This Way. But uh, of course the legacy of that song didn't end there, right? So Carl Bean recorded a version that was released in 1977. For those of you that came in a little early, you heard that version of the song. It's actually above my head so you could see um, the, the record uh, from, for that version, the 1977 version. And um, so why two events about one song? Uh, wanted to provide a bit of context, um, in, in particular because tonight's event is gonna be very different than last week's event. We're actually kind of diving deeper um, in, into why this song is important right to Black history and to Black LGBTQ history. So it's going to be kind of a different conversation. But why two events? So let's, let me just answer that. So one, um, because it's important to counter the narrative about the lack of contributions from Black gay men to the larger LGBTQ movement. Um, you will look at films and read books and assume that Black gay men were not present and were not creating and, and, and speaking truth to power. And this is countering that narrative. Two, um, this song was recorded by two Black gay men, written by a Black woman, played on Black radio, and distributed by a Black record label. So this song is Black history. And it's really important that we honor that as well. Three, uh, both men who sang this song sang two really distinct versions. So if you heard uh, Val's version last week and you hear, you hear Carl's version tonight, um, these, both of these histories deserve recognition. Um, and we wanted to give both Val and Carl their flowers while they're here. So. Um, that is why we're doing two events. And so I'm glad that you came back to participate in this part of the conversation. So with that, we are going to jump in and learn a bit more about Archbishop Carl Bean's legacy. 
If Valentino's I Was Born This Way had kicked open the door in 1975, Carl Bean ripped it off the hinges never to be closed again in 1977. Bean, who grew up in Baltimore, grew up in the church surrounded by not just the Christian faith, but the theology of Black liberation. According to Bean, as a gay boy, he knew that gospel music would be his ticket out, and he left for New York City. At 16 years old, in New York, Carl Bean crossed paths with Alex Bradford, and Bean was approached to become a member of the famed Bradford Singers. And he was also introduced to the Black artists making waves in New York City. So... They kind of just grafted me in, this kid from Baltimore, as if I was a New Yorker. So I was like thrown in the midst of all these kids who were outstanding folk in the New York area. Val and Nick, during that period, did the uh, Let's Go Get Stone thing for Ray Charles. And they began to have a name on the professional level as writers. Mm -hmm. Well, they, we all hung around uptown in Harlem um, and I, so I was getting to know all of them and they were getting to know me. So I was dreaming bigger, seeing bigger, believing bigger. And I had left Baltimore as a young kid who had been raised in the NAACP, my church, Providence Baptist. My pastor's name was Marcus Garvey Wood. After several years with the Bradford Singers, Bean purchased a one-way ticket from Newark, New Jersey to Los Angeles. It was in LA that Bean's demo caught the ear of Lee Young, the brother of jazz legend Lester Young. Bean recorded and released his debut album, All We Need Is Love, with his band Universal Love, produced by Young on ABC Records in 1974. Bean knew that in order for him to further spread his message, he'd need to reach beyond the gospel genre. And just so happens, Lee Young Jr. took a job at Motown. While playing Carl's ABC record, he caught the ear of Barry Gordy. Bean was then approached to re-record Bunny Jones and Chris Spearer's I Was Born This Way. Upon hearing it, he knew it was his to sing. When they, they approached me, I knew when the song came that because I sat on that step and heard what's going on in, in the staples, and that's what God had touched me with this message music, but in hearing that that day, I never would have thought in a million years I was going to get the chance to think about being gay. That was so far from my memory buying for thinking that it just was nowhere around. When it came and Motown presented the song, I knew the minute I saw the lyrics, it was mine to do. Because this is what I left to do. I didn't know it was going to be about my potential particular journey. I thought I'd be singing about race and, you know, love and, because that's the kind of stuff I wrote for the album. Not thinking in a million years they were going to sing about gay nothing. When I saw the lyric sheet, I said, <clears throat> ain't no need of me questioning God. This is, this is why all of this has happened. 
So I just, by faith, need to walk through this door. Bean's version of I Was Born This Way was an instant classic. And for Bean, was his way to spread his message of liberation to Black people. Carl's message to all of us, it's more than that song. They need to know it's more than that song. They just need to know that. And that song is, is just a manifestation of the call to continue the social justice call that Howard Thurman, Dr. King, and so many others who stood in the gap. I was just asked to do it with black skin and same-sex attraction, but it's just a continuation. It's not separate. It's not off to the side. It's a part of the liberation of a people. Uh, with that, I am going to introduce the person who is going to join me for tonight's conversation. So I'm going to read his bio. Um, and so Kipper Jones is uh, about to join me. And Kipper Jones is the songwriter of hits like I Want to Be Down and Baby for Brandy, The Right Stuff and The Comfort Zone for Vanessa Williams, and much more. Kipper jo Kipper's career is a timeline through the history of modern Black music from, from performing and recording as part of the R&B outfit Tees, as well as working with a multi-generational collection of musicians, including Luther Vandross, Anita Baker, Teddy Pendergrass, Darius Rucker, Tina Marie, Eric Clapton, Lauren Hill, and Sly Stone. Kipper is a respected activist and educator who hosts his own webcast called No Better with Kipper Jones, among his many other socially conscious endeavors. He's doing all of this <laughs> while completing his degree um, at Boston's prestigious Berkeley College of Music. For Kipper, soul isn't just about the music, it is truly about the soul of a people. And folks, Welcome, Kipper Jones. Kipper, how are you? You're on mute, but can you hear me? Mute. That's how I am. <laughs> I, that's, that's how I am. I am on mute. Oh, no, I'm, I'm doing well. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You are so welcome. And so there, Kipper is aware of this, but um, also I mentioned to everyone that this conversation is going to be a unique one. We are going to bring in the voice of Carl Bean throughout the course of the conversation that Kipper and I are going to have. So I am going to turn that on and we're going to bring uh, that, uh, that up on the screen as well. So Carl will be, uh, will be bringing in various things. So first thing I want to do um, before we jump into the conversation, Kipper, Kipper does not know I'm about to do this. Oh so, <laughs> I, right. So, I found something that actually relates to Kipper's history at Motown. Um, and I'm going to put it on the screen, Kipper. Can you see this? Can you see what oh I have on? Oh, my God. Oh, Johnny. So I need, you, oh. I need you to describe to the people why I would put this on the why screen. Why you would do that to me? Right? <laughs> <laughs> so my, 
my first job in the, and my mother is watching this, so I'm sure she's like, oh my God. So um, my, my first job in the business was as a demo singer for uh, two very successful songwriters at Motown, Pam Sawyer and Marilyn McLeod, who had written uh, Love Hangover for Diana Ross and uh, You Can't Turn Me Off for High Energy and Walk in the Night for Junior Walker. I mean, they just, it's fabulous. Pam Sawyer wrote Love Child for Diana Ross and Supreme. So she's, you know, everything. But anyway, um, so my my mom, you know, once I got this job, and I'm not gonna go into how that happened, but but my mom would drop me off. Um, I was in 11th grade, so I mean, you know, I wasn't really driving. Mm -hmm. So my mom would drop me off at the uh, studio. And uh, Motown had these huge, beautiful studios in Los Angeles, Sunrise and Sunset. And um, so my mom would drop me off and I would stay and do my, you know, chores. <laughs> and, and then she would come and get me, you know, after, mm -hmm. after the session or whatever. And, you know, we're talking 1978. And of course this is pre cell phone or, mm -hmm. you know, even uh, what would the, uh, the pagers? Yes. <laughs> we didn't have any of that. So um, this one particular night when I got there, it was a very somber mood going on and you know kind of a couple of people were crying and I'm like what's going on and Marilyn was like oh my goodness I forgot um huh, can you call your mom and tell her to come back and get you because we can't work tonight um Mr. Gordy's father passed uh, Pops Gordy passed away and at that time and this is right before if I remember correctly right before his 90th birthday and they were, Pam and Marilyn were writing this song called Pops, We Love You. And they were going to give it to him for, I mean, you know, his a tribute to his 90th birthday. Well, he passed right before his 90th birthday. And so they wanted to just go ahead and just get this record done and, you know, do it as a memorial, you know. And so this, you know, it was going to be all the big Motown stars, you mm -hmm. know, the Diana Ross and the Smokey and the Stevie and the Yada and the this and the that uh -huh, and all of that, <laughs> right? So I'm at the studio and they're like, well, of course I couldn't call my mother until she got home, right? So, because I mean, I can't, yeah. So in the meantime, I had to wait there while the Diana Ross and the Smokey Robinson and the, and the people and the, and the Jermaine Jackson and the, ah, oh, just like, wow. I mean, you know, it's so funny, man, when, when you are, you know, destined to do what it is that you've been appointed to do. And I mean, Carl kind of talked about that. Excuse me, I did not say that. Um, I got a message and I'm just looking at the last message, inbox message he sent me. He <laughs> says, dad, you call me dad. I'm saying, yes. So in the interview, when, you know, dad was really kind of pointing to that, that ordination part, when God gives you what it is that you're supposed to be doing, who am I to say no, you know, kind of thing. And I wrote that down in the notes as I was watching that video. I mean, it's just ordained that that song came to him. Yeah. You know, it was ordained that I was supposed to be working with Pam and Marilyn and to be there. And Diana Ross is in the room and being all mama and like, oh, oh, you know, I mean, I'm just like, oh, why am I here with these? Because I'm supposed to be. Mm. Because I'm supposed to be. And that night was just, it was just epic. I mean, and if, for you to put that up, I was just like, Johnny. 
I'm, I'm full of surprises this evening. And <laughs> thank you so much for telling that story because that is part of the conversation that we are going to truly have tonight is how the music moves and, and how we move with it um, as well. And so for folks who have questions, um, please feel free to uh, put those questions in the chat. I am going to, um, and Chris Spear, if you could do me a favor, because this is a question I'm curious about. I was looking on the I Was Born This Way record, where was that recorded? Um, we're really, I'm curious to know where what studio that was recorded in. Um, so if you could drop that in the chat, um, that would be amazing. And um, also, if you have questions, please use the Q&A feature. It is down at the bottom of your screen. But I am going to anchor our conversation with, our, with my first question to Kipper, but we're going to start with... Um, uh, uh, audio from Carl from the interview that I did with Carl back in January. Um, let me, Archbishop Bean, thank you. Uh, the interview that I did with Archbishop Bean back in January. So let's listen to that and then I'll get into my question for Kipper. You were thought of as someone who would finish elementary, finish junior, senior high, and then the church was looking at where they were going to give you a scholarship to. Mm -hmm. That was very different environment than a lot of the other Baptists and, and evangelical kids that I was around. So when my ear, you know, picked up this gospel music and I grew fond of it, I found out, well, okay, this is a way for black gay kids to get out. Because the straight boys was thinking about doo-wopping in them days. So it was almost like gospel music became a way out for folks to be able to see the world, experience the world. Absolutely. It, because you found out that 90% or more were gay. Right. You looking on, but you found out once you got inside the bubble that these were basically gay men and lesbian women that ran this whole uh, genre and were the best at it. And they were the writers. Wow, that's heavy. I want <laughs> to pick up this conversation about um, LGBTQ folks in the church. Um, so Kipper, you know, for you in your younger years, right? Um, what were your feelings about um, your sexual identity kind of as informed by the church? Um, and how did that change for you? And when did that start to change for you, if at all, those feelings that you had when you were a kid versus where you are today? Well, I think um, initially, <clears throat> the directive from the church as far as your sexuality is concerned is that you don't have one. Um, and, you know, it. You, you, you pray your desires away, you you know, you certainly don't act on them. I mean, you know, if you're a, 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 a woman, of course, and you acted on them, well, you're just a big whore. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and if it's, it's, it's any patriarchal situation, of course, if you're a man and you do it, you know, you kind of puff your chest out a little bit, but, you know, but they still kind of look at you sideways. But if your sexuality is of the same gender loving persuasion, then you really don't act on it. I mean, you just don't act on it. You don't talk about it. And like Carl said, I'm, stop it. Like Dad said, <laughs> um, that uh, 
you know, he explained it as the the, the guys did the doo-wop thing and, you know, and the, the women could do kind of whatever they wanted to do kind of sort of thing. But if the guys were doing like the choir thing, uh, you almost, like he said, what do you say, 90%? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? You kind of, kind of figured that it was that many and you did not know from looking on. He said that mm-hmm. you didn't know from looking on, but once you got, what did he say inside the bubble? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Then you were like, okay, so I'm not crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you, you were kind of looking for some sort of camaraderie or, or, or something, some, some kind of alliance mm-hmm. with somebody, because if they're telling you that you can't be who you are, and you're figuring at this point, the voices in your head are telling you that I'm the only one that's like this. So I'm, I'm the only one that's going to hell. I'm the only one who's suffering through this. And then you're looking over here and you can't tell because everybody else is faking too. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's a pretty treacherous situation. It's, it's kind of like, kind of like walking through landmines because you're really trying to navigate this territory very carefully. Mm-hmm. Um, I, and since I didn't really go into the gospel music thing too much, I, I really don't want to, you know, speak like an authority on that field. Mm-hmm. But having gone into the industry at large, I don't know if the landmines were even greater um, outside of the gospel music sphere, because at least you had that camaraderie once you got inside the bubble mm-hmm. in gospel music, mm-hmm. you know. Um, it was unspoken. It was quiet, but it, there was a, there were alliances and and you know and that kind of thing. Absolutely. Um, what I when I was listening to what he was saying, you know, when you are growing up, it's like what you just said as well. Like you're looking for um, a way that you can find your own way. You know, you have something. You know that there's things that you can do. And you're trying to find your own way. And he was talking about, well, listen, I saw this gospel thing as a way that possibly I could do something. And at 16 years old, he went to New York and, you know, figured it out. Um, Mm -hmm. I want to make a a quick point here as well that I don't want lost on our audience. And that's if we line up the stories that Val told last week, with the stories that we're hearing from Archbishop Bean, they were in New York at the same time, (laughs) working in similar ways, different different kind of collectives, but moving kind of, uh, traveling some of the same path. And when I was doing my research and preparing for, this these conversations, it was just something that stuck with me. So I want to point that out for the audience as well, um, that Val and Archbishop Bean were kind of walking some of these same paths at the same time. And it's interesting that they both landed on, the, you know, with this song. <laughs> and what's funny to me is that you, you even mentioned, you know, in our pre-interview that, um, that Dad's record came out in 77, and I started working at Motown the very next year. Yeah. You know, it, so it, all this concurrency is just like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I thought that this was, um, I wanted to bring this together the way that I did. So mm-hmm. um, I'm gonna bring in um, another uh, point from Archbishop Bean. And once again, 
Uh, if you have questions, please go ahead and um, drop your questions into the chat. And, and I want to pick up uh, Chris Spearer, um, who has to leave in a moment, but he said um, he believes that I Was Born This Way was recorded at Motown. It was produced by Norman Harris, Ron Kersey, and T.G. Conway. Um, and so see how this is. Come on, Ron, have mercy, Kersey. <laughs> and of course was co-produced by bunny jones um thank you so much for that tidbit um as well uh chris and um, another note that i know from that record as well is tom moulton mixed it so if you're a dance a disco person like i am tom moulton mixed that song so that's cool so um i'm going to move on to my next um uh point with uh, archbishop bean when i got to l.a I said, okay, going back, you can find out who you are and what you're capable of if you go back into gospel. In order for you to, to enter another genre, you're going to have to present yourself in another genre. And I'd never written songs before. I wrote those a few songs. Mm -hmm. I went and got some kids from the south side of LA. I felt that um, that what I had heard in What's Going On mm -hmm. and the soundtrack I'd heard in um, I'll Take You There, mm -hmm. the, now I can hear the spirituality of the church, even though I didn't know that word then. But I can hear that it was it was not conflicting. It wasn't like the singers was doing one thing and the musicians were doing another thing. It was like it was all working together. But I knew it was all totally Black. And so knowing that it was all totally Black, I knew that it was garbage about there's a line in the sand and the blues musicians are over there and the gospel over here and the jazz is over there. I knew that all the musicians had come all from the same source. Yeah. They'd all been Black kids that probably heard the first music in the church. Absolutely. Listen, so, um, wow. <laughs> yes, exactly. So I did a, um, uh, uh, a video about, um, an artist by the name of Bunker Hill, Bunker Hills, uh, single. I did this song it's called the, uh, the girl can't dance. Um, it's a crazy rock and roll song. It's a precursor to punk. And, mm -hmm. but here's the thing. Bunker Hill was an alias for David Walker. David Walker was a singer for, no, 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 no. David oh, Walker was singing for the Mighty Clouds of Joy at the time. And so the Mighty Clouds of Joy couldn't know, right? Couldn't know that this person was over here doing this rock and roll thing too. They found out and it was a whole thing. But there's always, so this foundation, all coming from the same source. Um, I want to pick up Kipper because you mentioned this. What, what I know about you, here's what I know about Kipper, y'all, is that your foundation is in the church. Even though you're soul, even though you went soul RB, singer, all of that, all of that stuff, you didn't go the gospel route. But I know where your foundation is. So talk about. Is there was there ever a point? Did that ever did a conflict ever emerge for you as a singer with your faith? Oh yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, 
So my, my mother and I just had this conversation yesterday. I'm, I'm here in California with her. And, you know, because she tells her story, you know, I was born and raised apostolic. And then I got, you know, went into her other denomination and stuff. And, you know, my dad, my dad's family was staunch Baptist. <clears throat> my mother was raised apostolic. Um, all my friends are Kojic. So I'm kind of Baptistolic, Pentecostal, UCC. I'm just all over the place. So, <laughs> so like that. But while I was probably most, where I was probably most involved in church was at our home church, my grandfather's home church, Metropolitan Baptist Church in LA, here in LA. And my um, uh, pastor at that time was Frank Hardy. So this was probably yeah, early 80s or so. And at that time, I'm singing in the uh, young adult choir, singing pro uh, men's chorus whenever they did anything. And if they had a mass choir thing, I had to do that too. But plus I was, you know, working in the benevolence ministry with my grandfather and I was, uh, uh, was teaching in vacation Bible school. I was driving the church van. If uh, they didn't have, you know, I was, I was the utility guy, <laughs> basically. <laughs> but, um, and yeah, but I love my church. I mean, I grew up in that church. I love the people. We were family, you know? Um, and there was a situation one time where it was a Bible study and uh, this woman, this one particular woman stood up and said, well, pastor, some of us are concerned about having these nightclub singers singing in our church. And wow. yeah, um, now mind you, I'm singing in the youth choir, men's choir, the young adult choir, the, you know, and doing all this other church, I'm in church six days a week. And she said that. And, um, you know, and there was a man, a man from all over, you know, the room and whatnot. And from a couple of my aunts, I found out later <laughs> in life. <laughs> but um, that was very disheartening. I had never... You know, my grandfather, man, who was my hero, and you know, you know that, um, but he, he, I told my mom this, he said one time, you know, Kipper, everybody's not going to like you. And I, I couldn't figure out why. I mean, why, why I do to anybody? I mean, why, why? People have their belief systems. They have their, you know, if they're steeped and rooted in that judgment way, then they just are. Mm -hmm. And church is the, probably the greatest um, uh, a most guilty party of that. Um, you get this judgment thing and you have to be a certain way and walk a certain way and act a certain way. And there's no way possible that you are going to, you can't serve two masters is what they tell you. Um, you know, so you can't do that outside the church and then come in here and sing for the Lord. You just, you know, it's just, they, they just can't find any sort of agreement in that thing and so they you know they speak out against it and they they don't think about how you might feel about that they don't they don't know that i don't think she even thought that that would hurt me mm -hmm. but that thing tore me up and it and it really kind of turned me away from church for quite a while mm -hmm. you know and i'm sure that that's why a lot of that's just one of the many things i mean you know your sexuality can be attacked to the point that you just don't want to go to church and deal with that at all. That that fire and brimstone judgment thing from the pulpit has killed people, you know? And so that yet people don't realize the damage that they do. You know, I love God just like you love God. What's the difference? Why, how, how do you feel like you got a closer seat to the cockpit or something? I mean, I don't, I don't, 
I don't understand that. <clears throat> you know, I, I, I enjoyed the way uh, dad explained that, that, you know, there was no difference in the music if you really pay attention. What's, yeah. I'm not out there, I, I don't, you, you know me, man, I don't, I don't sing anything derogatory. I used to, mm. even as a writer, I used to say, if my mother can't listen to it, I can't put my name on it. Mm. You know, I, I even had a couple of songs with T's that I didn't like because I thought they were just a bit too risque or controversial or something like that. And I said, take my name off of that. I don't want, you know, you, 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 we talked about Better Wild Than Mile, which was a tease record that, mm -hmm. um, you know, a lot of people really like because it's so funky and all that, but you don't see my name on that record. Even though I did write it, <laughs> I told him to take my name off because that's not something I want to be attached to. Mm -hmm. you know? Um, yeah, I mean, integrity sometimes gets lost on stuff, but if you believe what you believe, stand on it. And I guess that's what she believed, even if it hurts somebody though, really? Yeah. yeah. You know? So, I, yeah. So, mm. yes, I had to deal with that. <laughs> and I'm, I know I'm not the only one, man. So many people are so turned off. You know, when I think about Tone A or mm -hmm. B Slater, people know him. Mm -hmm. um, man, the stuff that that kid had to go through, I just... I just prayed for him so hard. It was terrible, you know, how the church attacked him. The church, the place where you're supposed to be able to go for comfort and, and sanctuary. We have to be careful. Mm. You know. Where, when you, I'm glad you brought this up because you talked about um, you, your songwriting. Mm -hmm. Where, hmm, how do I ask this question? Where does your spirituality fit? I, I, I don't know if fit is the right word, but how, where do, where do you allow that to, how does it come? How do you allow that in when you're writing? You know, that's interesting. Um, I kind of sound like Aretha Franklin. I'm not sure it ever leaves. Mm -hmm. um, I think, <clears throat> I think because the process of songwriting for me is such a spiritual one anyway um that it's it's all involved in the process so i don't i don't ever go um okay this is a gospel song so let me write like this it's, it's really kind of what dad said um you know there's no hard line mm -hmm. in the sand that you know this can't be that can't be this and so I mean, I've written stuff like, um, uh, for instance, T uh, Deborah Cox's record, Sound of My Tears, mm -hmm. um, on her first album, um, for me is just, for me, it's like real gospel-y. <laughs> but again, and I tell people that all the time, I was trying to do my best Smokey Robinson. It wasn't, I wasn't thinking gospel, but when I listened to it, I'm like, oh, that's so church, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Um, so I'm not sure that it ever really leaves. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's just all part of the gumbo, yeah. as it were, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Um, oh. That said something really good, too, about um, uh, how, like, even the songs that he had written. Mm -hmm. He said, you know, you had to approach them, like, a different way mm -hmm. because, okay, well, I got to think outside of my gospel head but it really kind of turns out to be the same thing because you're still talking about all the same themes. You still have your same belief systems. You still sing the same way. You still, you know what I mean? So it never really leaves. 
Um, and when you look at artists like, like that or, or Sam Cooke or, mm -hmm. or an Aretha Franklin even, um, when you hear Dionne Warwick's I Say a Little Prayer, mm -hmm. it's absolutely beautiful. But when you sit here, Aretha Franklin's I Say a Little Prayer, mm -hmm. you have to get up and fan yourself because it's just like, <laughs> what is she doing? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's just your, it's, it's the fabric of what you do, you know? And it's so interesting that you mentioned those two versions because both of course, Aretha and Dion come from a very strong spiritual and, and spiritual background, but the, the type of spiritual music that they were both doing is very different. So that's so interesting that you would bring that, that up. And I, I want to talk about, um, because as we, as we kind of wind down, if folks do have questions, definitely drop them in the chat. Um, spirituality from the standpoint of the place, right? So I want to talk about a specific place, uh, but I'm going to play um, uh, this last point from, from Archbishop Bean, and then we're going to come back with the question. Hold on. When they had said to me I, they were going to premiere it at Studio One, which mm -hmm. was the answer to Studio 54 in L.A. Mm -hmm. It was owned by the real mucky, mucky, rich, white, gay boy. Mm -hmm. And I said, no, we're not. <laughs> that tickles me, and I live for it. Thank you, sir. <laughs> no, we're not. I don't care what happens there. I'm a Black artist. You're the number one Black label, and you are bringing this to the world. And we're going to prepare it at a Black club. I said, make sense. <laughs> I said, if the press will come wherever you think of, mm -hmm. something mm -hmm. that has never been hap never happened before. I said, so you can make it whatever you want it to be by opening. And Jules Mann, over her entertainment, I'm blanking on his name, was gay. He was who I booked it under. Mm -hmm. And I went there and the joint was packed and they must have clapped me back five or six damn times. <laughs> over and over and over and over because Motown had only sent me with the track from that song. <laughs> so listen, Jules Catch One, Kipper, is where we want to talk about as the place. So um, going back to that quote, from uh, uh, Frankie Knuckles. Like um, he talked about the warehouses being like a church for, for people who had fallen from grace. There were these spaces where we can go and be. And so what Archbishop Bean is talking about there is the fact that the release for I Was Born This Way on Motown, he chose to do it at Jules Catch One, um, which was the longest running LGBT Q club, probably still ever, but it was open longer than any other club in the country. Um, uh, I think it was 2015, it may have closed. But the point, uh, the question is, so Kipper, mm. take us into what you remember about the energy of Jules Catch One. Um, so Frankie called, he says church, mm -hmm. yeah. There were, there were three places you had in your life if you were a black gay kid in LA during that time period. You had home, you had church, <laughs> and you had to catch one. Um, 
it was sanctuary. Uh, now, like I said, I think my mother's listening to this, so she's probably about to find out some, some things she doesn't. Sorry, Dr. Beach. Know. Sorry. <laughs> but that place, it was my sanctuary. I ran to that place. I ran to that place for safety. I ran to that place for camaraderie. I, 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 I'm just because I knew all, all my like-lifed people were there mm-hmm. and they would meet me there and we would, we would dance and, and sing and cry and, and just love on each other. And it was just the most amazing outlet um, for those of us who were so suppressed um, to the point where it was, you know, it was really bad when there was a long line out front and you go, oh God, please don't see me standing out there. <laughs> oh, Try to hide yourself, right? Hide yourself so nobody see you going in to catch one. And then here come Janet, or here come Michael, or here come <laughs> you know, whoever else. I mean, you know, because it was the place to be, the energy in that room. It's it's it was it's inexplicable, really. Um, I mean, I I, um, I saw something in the notes about uh, uh, the Clark sisters. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you brought the sunshine. Woo! At the catch one, Johnny, I was there the night they debuted that record because I lived at the catch one. I don't know about y'all, but have you ever gone to a club like four nights a week? If, if the doors was open, I was in there. I don't care. They, they had a lesbian night. I was there. I'll be a lesbian tonight. I'm going to go. That's fine. Whatever. I would. I mean, if the doors were open, that's okay. You had to catch one upstairs. And then you had Jules' room downstairs. And Jules' room was like a little bar. And they had a piano. And um, Tony, oh God, rest his soul. Tony would play piano and me and Judy Jones. Oh God, I'm gonna cry. Kenny Jones and Penny Jones. We were the Jones people. <laughs> Everybody's name was Jones and none of us were related. Well, Kenny and, Kenny and, and, and Judy were mother and son. But me and Penny and Judy, and Kim, we were not related. But baby, we would get down there and sing and mm. oh, it was just amazing and just the love and yeah, uh, but when they bought that Clark Sisters record in there, it was, I never saw anything like that in my life. I mean, I've seen people run with the Holy Ghost in church. That's one thing. But we was in this club and just got through getting down and then all the doom, the doom, the boom, boom. And we were like, uh-uh, that's the Clark Sisters. Great pandemonium, pandemonium. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was just unreal. I thank God for that room. I thank God for Jewel and... um and Rue, and the fact that they knew that I, I'm going to speak about me, they knew I needed that space. They knew I was going to need to be there and meet Bobby DeBarge and, and, and hang out with Bernadette Cooper and, and just, you know, and all of these, they knew I needed that. And that's why that place existed. And it was life for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Even though they broke in my car and stole all my stuff on Christmas, but we'll talk about that some other Ooh, time. <laughs> you know, that's when you know it was a good night. Um, <laughs> your car <laughs> get broken into while you're inside getting your life. Um, okay. So, we, and we, and, and thank you for bringing in the Clark sisters. So one of the things that I, I didn't, you had kind of addressed the answer to that question in another question, so I didn't go there. But <laughs> do, I'm glad you went there because 
we're still talking about this foundation of I was born this way kind of coming from that spiritual place, from that place of liberation. So we're talking about Black liberation. We're talking about Black spirituality. I was born this, this way includes all of that. Yes. I was so honored, happy, just whatever the word is to hear dad talk about Howard Thurman. Um, people don't talk about Howard Thurman enough. He is the father of the Black liberation mm -hmm. theology. Mm -hmm. And when, you see, dad is a special breed because there aren't many Black gay people who understand Black liberation theology mm -hmm. um, because most of us are not comfortable enough in our own skin to be able to address uh, a liberation theology from the Bible as mm -hmm. it stands. It goes against almost everything that traditional Christianity espouses. Um, that's why a guy like Dr. Jeremiah Wright gets in so much trouble mm -hmm. because he is a disciple of Howard Thurman. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I was just glad to hear him talk about that. People don't understand the root of the word liberation. It is It means freedom. Uh, if you are a liberal, why are you upset? Because that means freedom. Mm -hmm. um, you know, just the, the word free, whom the sun sets free is free indeed. But yet some of us in this Christian walk still are not free unless we're in bondage. There is a weird juxtaposition that's happening. While I'm celebrating that great feeling that we had when the Clark Sisters record played at the Catch One, had they known that, they would have had a fit. Mm. Oh, Kipper, we that's a whole show. All right, we going <laughs> that's a whole you know, but that's that thing. That's that's the thing, you know. Yeah, mm. that's the juxtaposition. Ooh. You okay? So in the last few minutes that we have, I want to um, soul in the sanctuary is something that you created, um, mm -hmm. and I want you to talk about that because this is what we're talking about here, right? Yes. Um, yes. Talk a bit about soul in the sanctuary and kind of what inspired that program for you. Um, well, you know that that again, Dad said it. There's no hard line in the sand about you know between genre and that kind of thing. So for me, having grown up in church and being so heavily influenced by the music of the church, um, and then growing up to craft R&B and, and pop and, and soul music, I'm like, wait a minute, there's so much, not just influence, there's just a lot of the same thing mm -hmm. in, in, on this side and on that side, if you wanna, if you wanna separate it that way, in, in sacred music and in secular music. Mm -hmm. um, I'm so steeped in hymns. Um, what a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. Uh, what a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. So what's the difference in that? And you just call out my name and you know wherever I am, I'll come running to see you again, right? Mm -hmm. uh, when you bring summer or fall, all you got to do is call and I'll be there. You got a friend. So I came up with this idea. How about if we had an evening of just that whole thing of juxtaposition, uh, the juxtaposition between a song like What a Friend We Have in Jesus and You've Got a Friend. Um, have a little talk with Jesus and Stevie Wonders, have a little talk with God. Mm -hmm. um, there's so much 
of that sameness. There's a song, uh, enjoy in Jesus, hallelujah. Oh, 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 enjoy in Jesus, hallelujah. And that is to me the same as happy feelings in the air. And so just to an evening of that inside the church, though, not mm. at a concert venue, not at, um, you know, a, a, a secular venue inside the church. Um, I, I just had this vision of that. And so I put together a, a, a song list and uh, some buddies of mine, uh, the McKinney brothers in, in San Diego, shopped it to their dad, who was at that point, uh, God rest his soul, I love him, uh, the pastor at St. Stephen's Church of God Christ in San Diego, um, uh, Dr. McKinney, uh, Bishop McKinney. And so he said, have Kipper come and do it here. Mm. And so I, I flew to San Diego and I did it there and it was amazing. Um, my mother stays on me about that program. She wants me, because I mean, you know, I think she realizes the importance of it and how that can probably even help with that hard line of, of what happened to me, of how mm -hmm. people tell people in the church, don't bring that in here or mm -hmm. don't do that over here. That was a church of God in Christ. That's a Pentecostal church where I was when I did that. That was a Pentecostal bishop who invited me to do it in his church. And he loved it, you know, because it was not, it's not disrespectful. There's nothing sacrilegious or dark or wrong or anything about it. It still has that same message of love. Uh, the message of God is love. Love, God is love. And those who know not love, knoweth not God, for God is love. That is, that's just it, period, you know. Um, so to speak, on that note, though, looks like we're going to be doing Soul in the Sanctuary again soon um, because uh, Greg McKinney is now at New Light Church in Houston, Texas, uh, and uh, we just kind of got a little nudge and we might be doing that soon again. So that <laughs> Wonderful. I want to bring one thing in before we wind down. So I am going to... Um, Give me one second, Kipper. I'm going to do this. And so Chris Jones, who uh, is Bunny Jones's son, uh, would like to say a few words on behalf of his mother. And so, Chris, I'm going to I'm going to bring you I'm going to bring you allow you to talk in the conversation. I think you're probably going to have to unmute yourself. Um, but if you could unmute yourself, we should be able to hear you. I just did, I believe. You did. Oh, Chris, thank you so much for being here. Listen, let me, um, as I had indicated earlier, I'm, I'm really split between time, but I found that I felt this would be very important to participate. And I might add that I learned a great deal in the last hour. Um, my mother, who's been gone, left us back on Mother's Day of 1998. Basically, my mother was a beautician by trade. We were both from Harlem. Uh, she was lucky enough and an entrepreneur enough, especially being a black woman back in the 40s and 50s was not an easy task. Plus not having a husband. Well, she did get married later after my dad left us. So anyway, most of her life was spent making ladies look good. But during that time, and she was also, as I mentioned, being an entrepreneur, she had several shops that were her own. She did the hiring, she did the firing. And in several of those shops, uh, which was to nobody's surprise, a lot of times the operators would be gay men. As that went on, Bunny 
And I always called her Bunny. Most people say, you never called your mother mom? The reason I didn't, because she was so much more to me than a mom. And that's a conversation for a whole nother time. But getting back to Bunny, she had this sense of feeling for people. She could almost look at you and tell you how you felt. And she saw, and having been through so many horrendous things herself as a black female, she very well could easily empathize with some of the problems that the gay community was having. So when people ask me, are you sure your mom wasn't gay? I said, no, if she was, she, you would, she would have definitely known about it because she didn't bite her tongue about anything. She wasn't, she was proud of it. And she had no problem living or dealing with the gay community. So Val, who you discussed several times earlier, she and Val were like, I think Val, he was son number seven or something. I was Bunny's only child. But all of my close friends, people who got to know her later, everybody took a number. If you were a girl, you were daughter number 12 or just a whole slew of a bunch of us. So anyway, what happened is she was talking to Val and she just thought, what a really cool guy this guy is. He's really, really on the ball. And she had just started getting her feet a little wet in the music business. She'd been in last store. She had several stores on 125th Street, one of which was a half a block from the Apollo, how I eventually got into the business and worked with Stevie and a whole bunch of people at Motown. But once again, a story for another time. But coming back to, and Kipper, you hit on this in several different ways, and so did you, Johnny. And I want to thank both of you. <clears throat> music, and we've all heard this term before, music is a universal language. You know, you don't have to speak Chinese or understand Italian to know what a G clef is. If you can take a lyric or end music and get emotion from it, you've done your job as a songwriter and as a musician. Bunny could have cared left less about what people were going to say. She thought that in her mind, in her heart, that what she really attributed to Val doing this song was her way of saying, I know what you're going through and I feel for you. Um, she was that kind of person. She, she acquiesced to the, to the least of us, the, those who were not thought about or laughed at. She, she had, and I, to this day, have a problem with people that make fun of other people. It absolutely is not the way to get along with me. Um, I wanted to, and I said, give me a little time. I'm kind of notorious for being long-winded, although you wouldn't think with this Miles Davis voice I have right now that, that I do talk that much, but I do. Um, I just wanted to say that everything in life, you know, you so many times we'll say, and it's been said several, several times tonight, well, it just really wasn't the time. Let me tell you something. The time is when the time is. I know that sounds a little contradictory, but if you think about it, it's true. My mother tried to run with some other people. She ran a guy, and you can look this up. His name was Paul Zuber. He was a black Republican, but he was a very, very liberal Republican. She ran him for president well before um, Shirley Chisholm, but it didn't work, didn't have enough money, da 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 da. But she made a prediction right after Dr. King, not after King, I'm sorry, after Robert Kennedy got killed. She said, in 40 years, we're going to have a black president. Everybody laughed at her. Do the math from Kennedy's assassination, you get Barack Obama when you do it. She was very, very intuitive. Even some would say esoteric and kind of a little way past where most parents were. But that's why so many of my friends to this day still quote her and still 
uh, enamored with, with what she gave them. So getting back to the, the basic here with, I was born this way. The time that it didn't happen as hugely as people had hoped for, it would between both Carl and Val, it wasn't the time. Now I am convinced 40 something years later, 30 something years later, this is the time. It's time for people who have been overlooked, have been taken for granted. And that's just not the gay community. Community, There's women, there's so many different people that finally, as I like to call it, there's a sunrise of reality. People are slowly but surely starting to get, just because A didn't like B, doesn't mean that C has to dislike either one of them or like both of them. We are individuals, the way our music affects us, the way we do things in general, everybody dances to a different beat. This record musically moves you, both, both representations, both Val yes. and Carl's versions. You can't run away from the truth. I was born this way. How simple can that be? Why question it? If anything, learn from it. And I think that's what this record, this music has done and will do on a much, much larger basis. I really feel that. There's more I'd like to say, but I'm being told that my time is up, not by you, but someone else. Okay. <laughs> I didn't want to be on here without saying, I wish the community all that it can stand and have smiles until they never end. Oh, It's a time where people have got to really start respecting what we are and who we are. We are people. You mentioned something, Kip, about how can you love God and know, but I can't do this, but I can. It's because it's all been ingrained in our heads that that's the way we're supposed to think. Just because somebody was left-handed, believe it or not, the way we set our knife and fork when we sit down, Queen Anne back in the 11th century was left-handed, and she decided that would be proper, the way, proper way to eat. I mean, it's, if you think about it, it's ridiculous. We do a lot of things. Life is not very long, comparatively. So you got to make the best of it. Hating on other folks ain't going to help you get to happiness. All right. Oh, sir. Chris, I want to really quickly say thank you for coming. I know that last week, I know that you were trying to get on last week. Yeah. I am so honored that you were able to make it tonight and just thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And I know that your mother was here. She's here with us tonight and she was here with us last week. And I just want to say thank you again and have a wonderful, wonderful evening. And that is the perfect closing for tonight's event. Johnny, I want to thank you, but let me tell you something. She's been here with me the whole time. I've yes. Been okay. Yeah. So, um, Kip, I can tell how much you love your mother and how close you two are. I share that feeling, man. I'm the only child of an, of an only child. I'm the only child that you'll ever meet. Mother was an only child. Father was an only child. My stepfather was an only child. I'm an only child. So I know what it is to love a mother. Ain't no love like a mother's love, okay? I love all you guys, gals, everybody. Have a wonderful, not just evening or weekend, have a wonderful life because everybody on this call and not deserves it. Thank so you so go. much. Have a wonderful evening. And hey, I will. I promise you, but I do it on one condition, Johnny. Yes. That you do the same. I will. Thank <laughs> you. <laughs> Take care. Gotta Take go. care. Yeah. Bye-bye. Be good. Um, so for folks, we are going to wind down. Thank you so much for um, hanging out uh, with us this evening for um, the, the event tonight. Um, I want to say thank you to Kipper Jones um, for joining me as well. So a couple of next steps.
make sure it's